To Beirut, peace to Beirut with all my heart, and kisses to the sea and clouds, to the rock of a city that looks like an old sailor's face. From the soul of her people she makes wine, from their sweat she makes bread and jasmine. So how did it come to taste of smoke and fire? There are two traffic lights in central Beirut, and both are stuck on amber. But then, Beirut is busy building a new dream. Um, it's a cosmopolitan country, and people are very liberal and very moderate in their views. And while you have all these different confessions, um, like you have in Ireland, you know, you have a multitude of different religions and different experiences, different, different backgrounds. Um, the post-war uh, impression that I have of, of that is that uh, you know, people, are, people are quite able to get on with each other. Well, I suppose the first, thing, the first thing to observe is that five years after the war has ended, I don't think the Lebanese have learned anything from it. They haven't learned the lessons of the war. The sectarian system is still entrenched in every government organisation and bureaucracy. The sectarian system still exists in the government itself. The president must still be a Christian Maronite. A Sunni Muslim has to be the prime minister. A Shia Muslim has to be the speaker of parliament and so on. It's entrenched in the hierarchy of the army, though not in the ranks of the army at last, the system of sectarianism, which is the cancer in Lebanon, has therefore remained intact and was not destroyed by the war. This is where Black Saturday happened. It was a very bad day, and that was the, the breaks of the civil war in, in Lebanon. In December 1975, on what was ever afterwards to be known as Black Saturday, four Christians were found shot dead in a car outside the electricity company headquarters in East Beirut. Bashir Jamal was in Damascus when the news was reported to him. Phalangist officers of the time insist that he told them to kill 40 Muslims in reprisal. Christian roadblocks were therefore set up at the eastern end of the Ring motorway and the first 40 Muslim men to arrive at the Christian checkpoint, some of them travelling with their wives and children in their family cars to homes in East Beirut, were taken beneath the overpass and had their throats cut. When this news became known in West Beirut, 
Muslim militias followed the Christian example. For hours, civilians of both faiths dutifully queued at these terrible checkpoints at each end of the ring on the innocent assumption that the gunmen there merely wished to look at their identity papers. Only when they saw the hooded men with blood-covered knives approaching their cars did they realize what lay in store for them. At least 300 Muslims were butchered in this way. An equal number of Christians probably met the same fate. That's the Holiday Inn Hotel here in Beirut. Uh, also, that hotel has been destroyed during the civil war, but now they are trying to rebuild it again. They're actually working on it now? I think so. You can see they had uh, already starting. So this is the city where the old buildings has been destroyed, and now they are knocking down all the buildings, which is, it indicates there was a war here to try and make it in a better way. And that's where the Solidar project in Beirut. Solidar has basically three main functions. Okay, the first one is, is that it has to finance and execute all the infrastructure works for the central district of Beirut. And one of the, one of the things that makes this particularly difficult is that during the war, uh, because of the division between East and West Beirut, the local authority for West Beirut had nowhere to dump its domestic garbage. So they started dumping it into the sea. Uh, and they did that uh, in an area called the Normandy Beach, which is just beside the San George Hotel, a very, a very famous uh, tourist spot. So from 1976 through to 1993, this area was used as the, um, as the city dump. Um, and it reclaimed a, a large amount of land from the sea, from this domestic garbage. Uh, and the build-up was about 40 metres high, a large amount of which was under the sea. Uh, so this had a terrible effect in terms of polluting the, the Bay of Beirut and the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, and it needed to be dealt with urgently because you have 40 metres of built-up garbage and the gas build-ups and everything like that that, uh, that take place. So what we intend to do, is, is, and what we're already doing, is to treat this landfill and, and, and reclaim more land from the sea and then protect all that land with a very sophisticated marine protection and stormwater um, protection system uh, so that that land will become secure and that we can use that for development. As I say, this is part of the infrastructure works that we're intending to do. The total cost of these infrastructure works is estimated at around $500 million. Uh, and the fact that all this dev devastation has taken place and the fact that so much work is now going on has given us the opportunity to really explore the archaeological significance of the city centre. At 20 centimetres below uh, the pavement of the street, we are finding uh, structures of uh, 3000 BC and 2000 BC. On Martyr Square, we have one thing very special, which is the Hellenistic quarter of, the, of Beirut, because we uh, all the archaeologists used to say that uh, when the Romans came, they demolished all the Hellenistic city. And now we are finding the Hellenistic city. Near Martyr Square here, we have 
the foundations of a medieval tower. This tower gave its name to the martyr square in uh, Arabic. Martyr square is Sahat al-Burj, Burj meaning by Burj, uh, the tower. I'm taking you into the area where the restoration works are, are going on so you can have a look at the, at the actual site in progress. see this building on the right, this one has just been restored. This is the first building to be restored in the downtown. Each one of these facade stones has been hand-treated, hand-carved. Let's see if I can get down this way. This was really the front line. I mean, this area here was uh, completely, uh, you know, uh, no man's land, no-go area for, for the whole of the war. Two years ago, this area was occupied by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, refugees. There has been a fund established by the, um, the Ministry for Displaced Persons to uh, relocate all of the people, mostly back to their villages in the south. If we hop out, just I want to give you a view of, of, uh, of some of the work that's going on. The tide of refugees did not stop. Few even turned to watch. A woman was sobbing in the front of a car. A cart pulled by a scraggy horse was filled with sleeping children. Vartan was taking a photograph of some farmers as they hauled a plough behind them. One of the gunmen, in a pullover and brown trousers, started shouting, No pictures! No pictures! Another Palestinian in a camouflage jacket with an unkempt black moustache ran to the car, yelling at us, pulling back the bolt on his rifle. Clack, click! It was a sound we all of us understood. It was in lieu of a warning. Anywhere else, a man might cry, stop, or don't move. Or if he went to the movies a lot, he might shout, freeze, or hold it right there. In Lebanon, a man might mutter an obscenity, but then all you would hear was, clack, click! I was already inside the car, but the man ran to me and pointed the muzzle of the gun through the open window. Kasuktak, he screamed, your sister's cunt. If you hate someone in Lebanon, you speak obscenely of their family. The man was so angry that he was shaking, the barrel of the rifle banging against the top of the glass. Through the windscreen, I could see another armed man pulling Vartan back across the road, the Armenian opening his camera and extracting the film, a long, thin trail of exposed celluloid that hung guiltily from his hand. The gunman with the moustache tore open my door. Give me the film! He was shouting so loudly that he was spitting when he roared his instructions. There was no film, I said. I was a reporter, Marasul, a correspondent. The film! He screamed again. Another Palestinian ran over to us, an older man with a kinder face. OK, OK, mister, get in the car. It's OK. I climbed back into the car. The newcomer went to rescue Vartan. Dio was sitting in the front of the vehicle, looking at me with relief. Then the door opened again. It was the gunman with the moustache. I told you to give me the fucking film! I stepped out of the car again. Look, there was no film. Look, this is just a tape recorder, a cassette. Cassette! He hissed. It was as if I had sworn at him. Cassette! 
Your sister's cunt. Give me the fucking cassette. He seized the microphone from my hand and pulled. I let him have the mic, but the mic wire was still wound round my wrist, and it pulled taut as he stepped back. Give it to me, you bastard. Yes, but let me release the wire. He pulled savagely on the mic, and the line twisted tighter round my wrist. You bastard! You bastard! He kept shouting. Then he stopped, walked back three paces, held the rifle at waist level, and pointed the barrel at my chest. Clack, click! Your life does not pass in front of you when this happens. Later, I would learn in Lebanon that I had to think very carefully and quickly when things like this occurred. At the time, I stood there like a dog. Please. I said, please. When I drive around in Lebanon now, from my own point of view, I find... Well, living in Beirut, it's the first time in years and years I've lived in a city that's at peace, and I like the experience. Um, at home now, here in Beirut, I've got almost 24 hours electricity every day. Sometimes it's only 12 hours, but it's improving. Um, it's not difficult to get gas supplies. It's uh, not difficult to make sure you have sufficient water. And, of course, I can go out at any time of the day or night, and it's probably, well, it must be safer than, than Dublin, parts of Dublin anyway. You can walk where you wish. Uh, no one will harm you. This is a bead, a, a Phoenician bead. You see it's done in, uh, in glass. Man. Yes, it's a little man. It's so in glass. Small. You see, it's really beautiful. Yes. It's blue, cream, and this is uh, a past just to hold it. They must have gone through everything very, very carefully to find something as small yes, as that. Yes, of course. Ah, gosh. That. And what period is, is it? Phoenician. Phoenician, Phoenician is uh, from 800 BC until 550. And, uh, this one I can date. You can date it? I can date it exactly. It's between 5 and 400 BC. 5 and 4, so it's Phoenico Persian. So it's maybe Iron Age until 550 or Phoenician under the domination of the Persians. For children, some schools were off completely. Some schools uh, closed because it was being affected by the shelling and uh, a lot of uh, damages took place in their buildings. So many people will uh, prefer, if there's fighting here, they will take them to somewhere else in the country to teach them. As well as, especially those, the poor people, many did lost their education because they have no chance of going to that school, as well as they have no chance from economic side to travel somewhere else. But now what the Lebanese edu education of the department trying to do is to give free education for the, for the primary period. The first uh, six years of education has to be free and compulsory on the people. First days of the of the of this war, it was started simple by a pistol and a knife and a stick. After about we say 
two, three weeks or one month maximum uh, new developments with the war, I mean, and with the uh, equipments. They start with the guns, artillery, and uh, rockets. Uh, I can remember lots of things during uh, this time. We stay more than eight months without electricity completely. No water. If you want to get a bread standing in front of uh, bakeries and the shells uh, used to be impact, I mean, between the people when they were standing in front of a bakery to get their bread. It was terrible. It was dead. No movement, you know. There was no difference between East and West. This words it came actually in 1975 by the factions and by the militias. They start to call it East and West. West where is the Muslims live and East where is the Christians live. Do you see huge differences now in Beirut compared to when you were there? Oh, there is a lots, lots of different, I mean, between now and the past time, yes. The future, it will be excellent, but it will take time. Now, now, uh, Beirut, it's united again. First of all, there is no green line. Anybody can travel where he wants. We don't like to say east and west again. Now we are saying Beirut. BCD, Beirut Central District. It's an area uh, that has always been the historical city centre of Beirut. It houses all the important buildings and uh, office, commercial, and many of the important cultural areas in the city centre, including, for example, the parliament area and all the government uh, buildings. The building you can see out here, which is the, um, the old Grand Sarai, and is going to become the new Prime Minister's offices. It houses the banking district of Beirut and a large part of Beirut's economy is built on, on banking and finance and it houses uh, Martyr Square which was one of the celebrated commercial areas of Beirut and also it, it's uh, on the seafront it's a very strategic area it's located quite close to the airport it's about a 10 minute drive to, from the airport to here and it's located right next to the port of Beirut so all of those factors make it a very important area in terms of the, of the um, ge geography of the city Probably because of that fact, this area became the front line uh, all throughout the 17 years of civil, civil war in Lebanon. So as a result of the war, all of this area had uh, suffered from tremendous devastation. Um, all of the buildings were, almost each single building was completely destroyed. And on top of all of that, at the end of the war, which finished at the end of 1990, many of the people located into this area as refugees so you had a, a, an area of about 1.2 square kilometres um, which was completely housed by 
or completely occupied by refugees squatting in the area in tr terrible uh, conditions, as I say, with no windows, no walls, you know, hunks of concrete just hanging down off buildings. So there was a, a huge need for all of these things to be readdressed. And as part of Lebanon's aim to recover quickly uh, from the war and to try and uh, get the economy back on its feet, one of the primary concerns in terms of, of rehabilitating the country physically and economically was to get the city centre back up and running. So what you basically have is, is, is the concept of uh, this private company being established, acquiring the land, uh, the ownership of the land from its original owners, who in most cases uh, would not be able to finance the reconstruction of these buildings themselves because of 20 years of, of devastation. So allowing this central company to come in, take control of that, and in exchange for that to give shares in the company to those people whose properties were taken. And at the same time, raising external finance from other investors to uh, fund the development programme that needs to be undertaken. So what we have done is we have acquired all of this land in exchange for shares, that land being valued at $1.2 billion. And we have also raised $650 million US dollars from Lebanese and Arab investors to finance the reconstruction programme, which we estimate will take 25 years to complete. We had a subscription period that lasted for three months, and we had a target of $650 million. In fact, we raised $976 million uh, during this three-month period, uh, so we had to refund the balance. So it was a major success in terms of uh, inspiring confidence in the, re uh, you know, the rehabilitation of the economy and the, the level of belief, uh, among, particularly amongst Lebanese investors, both resident in Lebanon and resident outside Lebanon, people had, who had been forced uh, to leave the country during the war, that they had a chance to participate in the renewal of, of, uh, of Beirut. The Lebanese, by their nature, are commercially minded, they're traders, they're businessmen, um, and they have succeeded in that, and they are very successful all over the world, both in the Arab world, in Europe, in South America, uh, in North America, Australia even. Um, so uh, it's no surprise that, that, uh, you know, that they have accumulated that kind of money. We didn't have any, any air raid shelters, but we used to hide in basements. And I remember in 1989, for example, uh, we used to spend every night in the basement, even with or without shelling, because we wouldn't even f sleep uh, um, all night, even if there were no shelling, because we were worried that the shelling might come back. So we, were, we decided that we sleep in the basement, and we used to go down around 6, 7 o'clock in the evening down to the basement, and we made the basement a comfortable place. We had our beds, we had our TV, and he used to sleep there at night, and then wake up in the morning around 6, 7 o'clock, go up again to the apartment, have a shower, change, and go to the office. So this was the situation we lived in, and uh, unfortunately, during the, the shelling, uh, the day after the shelling, we find a lot of thieves uh, roving around the city, trying to steal what was left of the shelling. For example, if a, if a, if a, if a shop was hit, they would go and clean the shop. 
if a car was hit, they cleaned the car, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it was, it was tough days, yes. There is a middle-aged woman in the road, wearing a black skirt, shrieking and beating her face with her hands, standing beside a small car that is smothered in flames. A French paratrooper is tearing at the door, burning his hands white in the fire. After 30 seconds of fearful pain, he reels from the vehicle, and we watch helplessly as the flames consume the interior. Camera crews cluster around the car. There was a woman inside. She was driving down the street when the bomb exploded 20 yards from her. For two minutes we wait while the ignited petrol engulfs the Volkswagen, the television crews silently filming the cremation. After four minutes, the flames die and the heat slackens and a Red Cross man tears off the door. In the iron-ribbed remains of the driver's seat, there sits upright a blackened skeleton, the skull slightly turned, the last juices of mortality dripping from its bones. A Lebanese Dizian bureau man with a two-way radio climbs onto a truck and shouts to his plainclothes men, stop them, stop filming, go home. Which way do we go here, Herbert? All cars has to go down. But... That's the only way, you know, all cars is back to down. But even if you go back to the sea now, it's close from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. See it directly behind us, yeah. See it the other way. Yeah. Well, is this not just as bad as the days, the bad days? It's a, it's a bad day, <laughs> as you said. The traffic is a uh, traffic jam, as you can see. You can waste your day in a traffic jam. Yes. What, what was it like for all your family here during the war? We have to stay here, but when we feel the situation it is very bad and there is heavy fighting continuously, we leave the city and we go to the mountain area. And then when we see it back to its normality, or not normal, but at least there is ceasefire, then we return back uh, to our home. Are you pleased with all that's happening here now? Now it is comparing to the previous time, it is much, much better. At least you will go out and you feel safely and you will be able to return back home without uh, being shot or anything. Yes, I do feel much better now. Uh, there isn't any. There isn't any. Not anymore. <laughs> but it's being rebuilt, so I'm glad to tell you. Yeah. Um, it's. I'll, I'll take you past the, the area of the souks in a minute. It's actually just over that hill there. <clears throat> we're rebuilding the souks. The whole souks were completely destroyed during the war and we're building them they're due to be finished by the middle of 1998 um, and they're being rebuilt on the traditional uh, street grid that they had which is the same grid as was used during 
the Ottoman times and the Roman times, it was the exact same street layout. So we're putting that back as it was. Um, in fact, we found loads of mosaics from the old uh, soups area, you know, the fishmonger's shop with all the fish and the bread shop with all the bread and stuff like this. You know, this is a new uh, underpass and street that's being built. Uh, it's due to be finished by March of 96. That will link the port of Beirut back to the main Beirut network and it's the beginning of the, the Beirut-Damascus highway which is a, an Arab highway being, being built. Now speaking about the souks area, we have 60,000 square meters. Uh, we had 60,000 square meters of archaeological excavations. When we reached the uh, bedrock, the archaeologist said, okay, you can excavate. We are excavating now the parkings after taking out all the remains. And uh, we are preserving here the medieval moat of the city because it's a unique rock-cut moat. And 1,200 square meters of a Phoenico-Persian city with the imprints of the houses. And the street going down this building to arrive until this street, Alembi Street, where the archaeologist found the Roman port of the city. And under, under the Roman port, we know that we have the Hellenistic port and under the Hellenistic, the Phoenician port. So it's very important for us uh, but uh, here we don't know what it's going to arrive to this port because it, maybe it will be very difficult to preserve it. We will have also here a little basin called Al-Antabli because we had, before the war, this gentleman used to live to have his little shop of uh, sweets here, of uh, oriental sweets, and he used to buy, uh, to sell also juices and sweets around a little basin. So this little square used to be called Al-Antabli, following after the name of this gentleman. So this gentleman is coming back to the souks, and he will stay here. And uh, in this souks, we, uh, the archaeologist, found also the same urban grid uh, since the Phoenician period until the modern times. We uh, found also the same sewages since the, the Roman period until the modern times. So it's very interesting for the architects and for the design of the old city. As you know, we're from the AESB International, and um, our contract was a two-year contract with the Council for Development and Reconstruction. Uh, it's a government-owned uh, owned institution, and its primary purpose is to facilitate the whole uh, recovery after the war, and especially the reconstruction of the, of the country. Uh, our job... Uh, the, uh, the, uh, is, is the rehabilitation of the electricity sector and uh, when we came here first they had uh, electricity for four hours a day in some, in some places 
Now they have a 20 hours a day in most of the country. Um, and all that's been achieved is that the electricity system that was here before the war has now been rehabilitated, but virtually nothing new has been added. So there's still a, a big um, backlog of work to be cut uh, up on. And the services like electricity, water, telecommunications, um, sewage, all these services that we take for granted at home are now are only now improving and were, were, were very, very bad when we came here. Because we see these wires down in the middle of town. I mean, thousands of wires across the road. <laughs> Lemonade wire. <laughs> what they are is um, some local person is actually selling electricity to the locality. And if you follow those wires, you'll invariably come to a little generator. Not a little one, quite. A medium-sized generator. They'll be tucked in behind a hotel, tucked in behind a house, and from that, these people are, are um, fed electricity. It costs them about $50 a month. And they get, they get their supply when the utility isn't working. And is that allowed? Let's say it's, it's tolerated. Because there is, it's tolerated because there is no alternative. Jenkins and I had darker fears. If the murderers were still in the camp, it was the witnesses rather than the photographic evidence that they would wish to destroy. We saw a brown metal gate ajar. We pushed it open and ran into the yard closing it quickly behind us. We heard the vehicle approaching down a neighbouring road, its tracks clanking against pieces of concrete. Jenkins and I looked at each other in fear and then knew that we were not alone. We felt the presence of another human. She lay just beside us, a young, pretty woman, lying on her back. She lay there as if she was sunbathing in the heat and the blood running from her back was still wet. The murderers had just left. She just lay there, feet together, arms outspread, as if she had seen her saviour. Her face was peaceful, eyes closed, a beautiful woman whose head was now granted a strange halo, for a clothesline hung above her, and there were children's trousers and some socks pegged to the line. Other clothes lay scattered on the ground. She must have been hanging out her family's clothes when the murderers came. As she fell, the clothes pegs in her hand sprayed over the yard and formed a small wooden circle round her head. Only the insignificant hole in her breast and the growing stain across the yard told of her death. Even the flies had not yet found her. I thought Jenkins was praying, but he was just cursing again and muttering, Dear God, in between the curses. I felt so sorry for this woman. Perhaps it was easier to feel pity for someone so young, so innocent, someone whose body had not yet begun to rot. I kept looking at her face, the neat way she lay beneath the clothesline, almost expecting her to open her eyes. She must have hidden in her home when she heard the shooting in the camp. She must have escaped the attention of the Israeli-backed gunman until that very morning. She had walked into her yard, heard no shooting, assumed the trouble was over, and gone about her daily chores. She could not have known what had happened. Then the yard door must have opened, as quickly as we had just opened it, and the murderers would have walked in and killed her. 
Just like that, they had left and we had arrived, perhaps only a minute or two later. We stayed in the yard for several more minutes, Jenkins and I very frightened. Like Tveit, who had temporarily disappeared, he was a survivor. I felt safe with Jenkins. The militiamen, the murderers of this girl, had raped and knifed the women in Shatila and shot the men, but I rather suspected they would hesitate to kill Jenkins, an American who would try to talk them down. Let's get out of here, he said, and we left. He peered into the street first. I followed, closing the door very slowly, because I did not want to disturb the sleeping dead woman with her halo of clothes pegs. Now, of course, uh, it's very, very secure. I consider Beirut probably one of the most secure cities in the world. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean there aren't any incidents, there aren't any thefts, but they're very, very rare. And when they do happen, Lebanon being a small place, we all, they always seem to find them, and very quickly. And as you have noticed, probably the, the, the police, the traffic police are back, and we have a lot of uh, uh, order, shall we say, in an, in an otherwise disorderly traffic. <laughs> but it's relative. Although there is still a lot to do in order to become uh, more uh, modern. The, the, the city has become much cleaner. During the war, there were piles of rubbish all the time. This was one of the also uh, inconveniences that we were facing. Rubbish was not collected, and now the city has become very clean. Probably have seen this. Maybe, maybe not as clean as Dublin, but I mean it has become relatively much cleaner than it, what it used to be before. And um, I think it's not a question of security that is hampering tourists coming. It's a question of uh, cost. Uh, because of the war, the cost of, uh, of rooms in Lebanon is now relatively high. There isn't available on offer yet as much as it should be. Obviously, we are very hopeful and we are very resilient. And uh, we are looking forward for a very prosperous future, especially uh, after the peace uh, accord when that happens. For years after the war, I would drive around in Beirut and I would still find myself unconsciously thinking or saying to anyone who was in the car with me, I remember a shell that hit that building. I remember having to run across that road. I remember a man's body lying crumpled in, in, in that doorway. And you, you could still see, and in many cases you still can see, uh, the marks on the road by the shells which I saw explode. There's a, a road on the other side of Hamra with a spray of shrapnel marks on it. It's still there now. They haven't resurfaced the road. And that shell cut the hand off a little baby. I remember distinctly seeing the baby being pushed into the ambulance with blood all over it. Um, but those memories do not reoccur. I, I, I can clearly remember them if I wish to, but I don't any longer drive around saying that. I remember driving with Lara up to the Shouf about uh, a year and a half ago, up into the Shouf Mountains, which was a scene of terrible ethnic cleansing, as it was, but we didn't call it then, in 1983, burning and murder and slaughter with knives. And I remember driving up, up there, going up to, um, to Murtara, actually to have lunch with Walid Jumblat and his wife. Uh, Jumblat had been a major militia leader during the war and is now a government minister. And I suddenly realized as we were driving up through this veil of mist, through the green trees, I turned to Lara and said, you know, I've just realized it's the first time I've been out in Lebanon and haven't thought about the war. It was just a road going through the mountains. The thing that amazed me most was that the Muslims in the West rarely went into the East and the Christians in the East rarely went into the West. To the extent that uh, I asked our, our young secretary to um, go to a stationer 
in the West and the poor girl nearly died. It was her first time ever in her life being in, the, in, in West Beirut. That was the, the position when, when we came here. You, 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 could, you could see the divide, you could see the tensions between them. Because after all, it was only two, two years since the war had ended. But I must say that in those two years, uh, I'm not conscious of that, that divide anymore. It's, it's, not as, it's, it's not as evident, and people are freely mixing. But still underneath the suspicions and the darkness is there, there was a village up in the Shuf Mountains, where a few weeks ago there was a public reconciliation between Christian villagers and Druze villagers. Um, during the mountain war, the Druze had taken 69 Christians from their home in 1983, had lined them up outside their homes, men, women and children, and shot them all. The bodies were then apparently cut up and were thrown down two wells where they were burned. Well, the government and the local Druze leaders arranged a reconciliation so that the Christians could return and uh, a Christian Maronite village leader embraced the elderly Druze leader of the same village. They had lived together there originally. And the Christians were given permission to return and the Druze promised that they would be protected. But when I went to see one of the Christians who intended to return, he was running a bakery store in East Beirut. He brought out the photographs of his dead parents who were shot by Druze neighbours whom he knew and whose names he gave me at their front door. And he held the photographs out and he said, I have one wish and that is to go back to that town with a rifle and kill as many Druze as I can. And he said, if I cannot do it, I am going to marry my daughters to young Christian men and it will be their duty to go back to my town and kill as many Druze as they can. The ferocity still burns below the surface, which is why one day I fear perhaps not in our lifetime, the war will rekindle in Lebanon. Pity the nation that is full of beliefs and empty of religion. Pity the nation that wears a cloth it does not weave, eats a bread it does not harvest, and drinks a wine that flows not from its own winepress. Pity the nation that acclaims the bully as hero, and that deems the glittering conqueror bountiful. Pity the nation that despises a passion in its dream, yet submits in its awakening. Pity the nation that raises not its voice save when it walks in a funeral, boasts not except among its ruins, and will rebel not save when its neck is laid between the sword and the block. Pity the nation whose statesman is a fox, whose philosopher is a juggler, and whose art is the art of patching and mimicking. Pity the nation that welcomes its new ruler with trumpetings and farewells him with hootings, only to welcome another with trumpetings again. Pity the nation whose sages are dumb with years and whose strong men are yet in the cradle. Pity the nation divided into fragments, each fragment deeming itself a nation. Mm -hmm.